lips. And with three loud blasts, they announce that the day has begun, that daylight is coming. The massive doors of the temple are pushed open when those trumpets sound. And already the grounds of the temple are buzzing with all kinds of activity. Activity that began the darkness of the pre-dawn. As the priests and the Levites made the preparations for the morning sacrifice and the day's activities. In that darkness, the priests charged with the work of the day had washed, perhaps 50 of them. They'd washed themselves and ceremonially prepared themselves for their work of the day and put on their garments. They divided into two groups and with glowing torches in hand, they made their way all through the temple grounds, inspecting the courts by the flickering light of those torches. When that work was done, when they had made their rounds, they gathered in the hall of hewn, polished stones of Herod's temple. It was the old meeting place of the Sanhedrin that had now been turned over to the priests for this purpose. And here the day's duties were determined by lot. This kept politics and favoritism out of the picture. Everybody had different duties to do, and you didn't want the same people doing the duties, the same priests doing duties all the time. You didn't want those who were favorites of the high priest performing those duties. And so they were determined by lot so that there would be no favoritism or politics involved. The casting of lots was performed in several ways, either with colored stones or shards of pottery. Uh, if the pottery method was used, there were shards of broken pottery, and they would either bear a name or a mark on them, and they would be cast to reveal who was selected to perform what duty in the temple that day. Solomon, he reminds us in the book of Proverbs, this is Proverbs 16 and verse 33, that the lot is cast into the lop, but its every decision is from the Lord. The priests met four times in the morning to cast their lots. Twice before the gates were pushed open and twice afterwards. The first of these lots were drawn under the glow of the fire on the great altar of sacrifice, which hadn't yet been stirred or, or fed with fresh wood for the day. And you can just imagine the, the, the polished walls of the temple and the pillars and the glowing light from that altar, that large altar that stood in the courtyard, sort of lighting and flickering off of those polished walls and pillars. The second lot was cast just after those silver trumpets sounded the dawn of the day and the light coming over the hill. This second lot determined who was to go into the holy place of the temple and trim the golden lampstand and prepare the altar of incense 
and offer incense on it. This took place inside that sacred and private part of the temple in the area just outside of the Holy of Holies. So you had the courtyard where the altar of sacrifice was, and then you had this building there at the end of the courtyard, and inside of that building, behind doors, was the holy place, and then behind the curtain was the Holy of Holies. So this second lot is cast to see who will go inside the holy place and trim the lampstand and burn incense on the altar of incense. The lamb for the morning sacrifice at this time was brought forward and inspected one more time just to be sure that it was fit to be offered. And uh, it was offered then on behalf of the nation. It was watered and then it was laid on the north side of the altar with its head facing west. As tradition said, Isaac had been placed on the altar by his father Abraham before the scapegoat appeared. All was now ready, and the worshippers filed in. The priests stood on the east side of the altar, and taking a golden bowl full of the blood of that lamb, that victim, he sprinkled the altar as the law required. With everything prepared up to this point, a third lot was cast to see who would be the one that would enter the now prepared holy place and burn the incense on the altar, signifying the prayers of Israel and their acceptance before the throne of God. And despite the attention paid to the preparation and offering of the lamb sacrifice, among the priests, it was the one who burned the incense on the altar inside the holy place every morning, hidden from all eyes but God, who had the highest honor of the day. It wasn't the one who offered the lamb. It was the one who was going to the holy place and would burn incense on that altar of incense before the curtain that stood in front of the Holy of Holies. The man who served in that capacity was ever afterward called rich by his peers and by the people. They referred to him as a rich man, as a rich priest. And that designation was based on the words of Deuteronomy, where it said to the tribe of Levi in Deuteronomy chapter 33, in verses 10 and 11, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your laws. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altars. Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again. So it's that blessing. Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. The one who burns this this uh, incense before you. It's that blessing that resulted in the priest who had this honor being called rich by his peers. The priest on whom this lot fell was required to make a confession of his faith after he was chosen and before he went to his duty. A special prayer was offered 
for God's blessing on him. And then he made his confession of faith. And that confession of faith involved reciting certain portions of Scripture. The most familiar one would be Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. So this priest, who had been chosen for this job, he would stand before his fellow priests, and he would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then after having said that, he would move on to Deuteronomy 6, beginning at verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as, he, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in the inn and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised." When your sons ask you in times to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The confession goes on with Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue cord in the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And after this priest, chosen for this duty, recited these portions of scripture as a confession of his own faith, then he went on to perform that duty. On this particular day, as the priest gathered for the lot to be cast, an older man, one described by Luke as well stricken in years, and therefore well over 60 years of age, the traditional onset of agedness among the Jews, stands among this group of priests. He's been there before. He's probably attended the temple for many years. But the lot for doing this job has never fallen on him. And the opportunities for him to be chosen for it are running out with his age. As long as his health and his strength for the journey to Jerusalem hold out, he can serve 
But in that regard, time is against him. Zacharias, or Zachariah, does not belong to the courses or the groups of priests who live in and around Jerusalem. He is a country priest from the hill country of Judea. He's doubly blessed, however. He's doubly blessed, blessed because he is a priest and he's married to the daughter of a priest. And the rabbi said, that makes you doubly blessed. If you're not only a priest, but you're married to the daughter of a priest, and that raises you in your position. Together, he and his wife had gained the respect of their family, their friends, and their neighbors. They were, as Luke reports for us here in Luke chapter 1 and verse 6, both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So when he made that confession of faith, He wasn't just reciting verses. He was giving testimony to his own faith. This is what God has commanded, and this is the way I have lived before the Lord. Alfred Edersheim, uh, the great scholar on these things, sums up the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth in this way. Such a household as that of Zacharias and Elizabeth would have all that was beautiful in the religion of the time. Devotion towards God, a home of affection and purity, reverence towards all that was sacred in things divine and human, ungrudging, self-denying, loving charity to the poor, the tenderest regard for the feelings of others, so as not to raise a blush, nor to wound their hearts. Above all, intense faith and hope in the higher and better future of Israel. There was another thing, however, that set Zechariah and Elizabeth apart. We read about it in Luke 1 and verse 7. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Some of the rabbis of the time thought that uh, there were two schools uh, at the time. And those of one of those schools thought it was Zacharias's duty to separate from his wife on this ground because she was barren and childless. But God's law didn't require that. And the two were content with the Lord's will in their lives. Otherwise, they could not be described as they are here by Luke in regard to their spiritual character, unless they were content with their circumstances. So as Zechariah stands there in the early morning light, he prays with the others, and he, he waits for the indication of God's will. And suddenly, for the first time, and what will be the last time, because you can only do this once, the lot falls on him. And there's very little time for him to to reflect on what has just happened. He needed to get immediately to work. His first task was to choose two friends or family members to assist him. The first of these entered the holy place uh, illuminated by the lampstand, the uh, seven-armed lampstand, and removed the expended coals from the altar from last night's sacrifice. Having cleared and cleaned the incense altar, 
that friend or family member would back away out of the holy place. Back into the bright sunshine. The second assistant would come in and bring a dish of fire from the altar of burnt sacrifice. Coals that would be uh, glowing and sprouting flame as he reverently entered and placed those that dish of coals on the altar of incense. And then he too would back out. While this is taking place, there's a strange and wonderful loud noise echoing through the temple. It's produced by an unknown instrument. We don't know what this instrument was. Um, its nature is shrouded in mystery. The only thing we can say for sure about this musical device, the megrapha, is that the sound it made resonated throughout the temple and it was loud and it went out beyond the temple and there are actually historical reports of it being heard in Jericho 14 miles away what kind of sound it is we don't know but it comes from the Hebrew word for shovel and it seems to be a sound akin to throwing a big shovel down on a tile floor. You can think of what that sounds like, that clanging sound. And that instrument is now sounding while Zechariah is approaching the holy place. It was the signal that whatever service you had been called on to do, you were to now undertake. Zechariah is now alone inside the holy place holding the golden censer with the incense in it. And this incense was carefully blended according to the law of the Lord. And that law is found in Exodus chapter 30 and verses 34 through 35. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stat and onyaka and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shovel be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. And that's what he's now holding in his hands. On his right side the table is the table of showbread. On the left is the seven-branched lampstand, glowing and offering the only light, besides those calls, coals on the, on the and flame on the altar in front of the heavy curtain leading into the Holy of Holies. He's awaiting a further signal from outside. The people had withdrawn from the vicinity now of the, burnt, of the altar of burnt sacrifice, and they were lying on their faces all over the temple grounds. And they recite, tradition and historical record shows, a prayer of this sort. True it is that you are Jehovah our God and the God of our fathers, our King and the King of our fathers, our Savior and the Savior of our fathers, our Maker and the Rock of our salvation, our Help and our Deliverer, 
Your name is from everlasting, and there is no God beside you. A new song did they that were delivered sing to your name by the seashore together, did all praise and own you as king, and say, Jehovah shall reign who saves Israel. Appoint peace, goodness, and blessing, grace, mercy, and compassion for us, and for all Israel, your people. Bless us, O our Father, all of us, as one with the light of your countenance. For in the light of your countenance have you, Jehovah our God, given us the law of life, and loving mercy, and righteousness, and blessing, and compassion, and life, and peace. And may it please you to bless your people Israel at all times and at every hour with your peace. May we and all your people Israel be remembered and written before you in the book of life with blessing and peace and support. Blessed be you, Jehovah, who blesses your people Israel with peace. And when those prayers were ended, and they'd been preserved from the liturgy of Herod's uh, temple for us, when, when they were finished, everything went quiet. There was dead silence among all these people lying on their faces all over the ground. You can just hear them. They're reciting this prayer and going through it, and they come to the end of the prayer, and then silence. And I think you can see in that prayer, can't you, just a, a beautiful connection with everything regarding the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ? What's the last thing in that prayer? Bless your people with peace. What's the message of the angels? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's the message that they bring on that day. And without going into all the aspects of this, you can just think of the angels' message to the shepherds and how it was a reply to this very prayer. But at the end of these prayers, the whole temple goes silent and the eyes of all kind of lift up and they start watching. And what they're looking for is for the smoke from the, altar of in, uh, from the altar of incense to rise up out of the roof of the temple. They're watching for that cloud to rise from the holy place into heaven as a sign that those prayers which they've just offered have been accepted. Zechariah steps forward He's been waiting for a signal. The signal he was waiting for was the end of those prayers and that silence. When all goes silent, he steps forward and he places the incense on the altar. And under normal circumstances, he would wait to be sure that it was kindled, hissing and burning and smoking. And normally then, he would, when he was sure the incense had been ignited, bow and walk back out of the room but on this day on this day as the incense became inflamed there appeared between the altar of incense and the golden lampstand an angel from the presence of the Lord outside there would be growing concern 
when the old priest didn't come backing out of the door to the holy place. It's easy for us to underestimate just how seriously the people took these events. To appear before God bearing the symbol of the prayers of all the people of God. Prayers of thanks. Prayers for present needs. Prayers for future blessings. That was momentous. And if one bearing those prayers did not appear, well, the implications were critical. Where is this priest we sent in there bearing this symbol of, of the, the of God, of Jehovah, hearing and accepting our prayers? He always comes out after the fire has begun, after the incense is burning, and Zacharias isn't coming. And it's, it's really easy for us to just lose all touch with the mystical character of this in the context of ancient Israel. But this is something the people depend on. It's something they look for. Especially those who are truly committed to the Lord. Their hearts are really drawn into to this moment and the importance and significance of this moment. Now inside the holy place, standing before Zechariah, is Gabriel, the might of God, speaking with him. And again, it's easy for us to underestimate this. I was talking this past week in chapel about the angels appearing to the shepherds uh, with the children, and especially among the youngest children from the preschool, or kindergarten, I should say, up to second grade. I, I said, I asked him the question, how many of you would go to a barn to see a place where animals field, feed or stay in a plane where you could see an angel. And most of them said they'd go to the barn. So I had to deal with that. So I said, okay, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever seen an angel? And a few little hands went up. And then, then I made the point. You know, would you really rather go see... And then I said, how many of you have seen a barn? And all kinds of hands went up. And I said, would you really rather go to a barn than see, than see an angel? We underestimate this. To the best of my knowledge, there's not a person in this room who has ever seen an angel, let alone Gabriel. Not one of us. And yet here is Zacharias in this holy place, and this angel from the presence of the Lord is standing there in the room with him. Put yourself in this place for a moment. The room is filled with the sound of the incense sizzling on the altar, the lampstand freshly trimmed is, is burning brightly. And before you is this great curtain which can only be parted on pain of immediate death except on one occasion by the high priest. And there in the midst of all of this stands this holy creature from the presence of God. The emotional and the physical impact must have been tremendous. And matched with the spiritual impressions, it sounds like an understatement when Luke says there in verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. I, I imagine he was a trouble. <laughs> I imagine he was scared. It's probably true that when an angel or the Lord himself says to anyone, don't be afraid, 
that unless it's accompanied by some spiritual aid to the troubled soul, it wouldn't be of much help just to say, don't be afraid. So I think he was given strength to do that. But at any rate, Gabriel speaks with Zechariah, and we simply follow the biblical narrative here, beginning in verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a a people prepared and Zechariah said to the angel how shall I know this because this is the answer to all the prayers that the people have been praying outside and right now there's an angel from the presence of God saying I'm about to answer all those prayers and he says how do I know this I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now put yourself again in the place of Zechariah. Imagine seeing all this, hearing all this, experiencing all this, and being unable to communicate any of it. You're known personally in heaven. I walked in to the holy place, and there's an angel there, and he called me by name. And just offhandedly, he referred to my wife Elizabeth and mentioned the fact that he knew all the things that we had been praying about regarding the son. Prayers that he would have given up due to circumstances some time ago are known by this angel as if they were spoken a moment ago. You're going to have a son, after all. And he'll be the fulfillment of the promises of God since the days of the prophets. And it will be his calling from the Lord to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, the Lord of himself. himself. Now if that was your experience or mine, I suspect that even you who might be adept at charades would have been challenged to tell this story through hand motions and body language. You know, where do you start with, it was an angel! <laughs> it was, you know, how do you say that with, you know, what do you do? What do you, how do you express that? And he spoke to me. And what he said to me reflected on things that I'd been praying for for years and that I had actually stopped praying for because I thought the time for their fulfillment was past. And he includes all the promises of all the things you all have been praying for. You know, how do you, how do you communicate that? 
And he's trying to do that with emotions, but he can't say a word. Life goes on for the couple, and the promises begin to unfold, just as he was told by Gabriel. Elizabeth does become pregnant. You know, when she announces that to, to Zacharias, you know, has, he can't say, yeah, I know. He has to say, yeah. <laughs> he, can't, he can't express that that's what has happened to him. Then later, a few months later, his cousin Mary visits, and she too was addressed by Gabriel. And while her voice and heart are opened up wide, and Elizabeth herself is even given a song by the Lord, Zacharias can't say anything. Now here's Mary talking all, saying all these wonderful things. Here's Elizabeth recognizing that the babe leaped in her womb and saying, Blessed art thou among women. And she gets, and I, all I can do is make motions and so on. But the day comes. And you read about it beginning in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, Now he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The first thing out of his mouth when he can speak when he has the opportunity to address in general, is to bless the name of the Lord. Zechariah the priest has his mouth opened and he's used by the Lord to bring an end to 400 years of prophetic silence in Israel. There's been a long famine of the word of God and the silence was in keeping with the words of the prophet Amos who prophesied 800 years before that there would be a famine of the word. And you can read about that in Amos chapter 11, uh, chapter 8 rather, in verses 11 through 12. The godly lamented this era. It's referred to in Psalm 74. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet. And there's none among us who knows how long. Well, suddenly and dramatically this silence is broken. And a father and son team begin a prophetic ministry that begins a monsoon whose drenching downpour begins with a vast proclamation of the word of God, one that is so extensive that nothing like it had ever been heard before. It begins with these two, Zechariah and his son John, 
And they're like the early rains of, of big drops that indicate a storm is on its way. Then it breaks into the massive outpouring of the word of God from the birth of the Son, who is the word itself, to the apostles and the formation of the New Testament canon. And the residue of that deluge of light and truth continues to fall down from heaven through the preaching of the word of God around the world today. There was that silence, and then that silence was broken. And the word of God came like a thundering storm into the world. And it continues to do so. Because for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but will the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, says the Lord, that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And Zechariah's prophetic hymn here, beloved, echoes the spirit of David, and in that sense, it helps us to see the continuity and the connection of the whole word. And here we are at the very dawn of the New Testament era, and what do we hear? The voice of God in the promises of the Old Testament. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in uh, in the house of his servant David. I'm just going to touch on this briefly as we draw down. First of all, Zechariah says, let every and any good thing that might be said, any praise, any glory, any honor, be fixed upon the Lord God of Israel. And you see that in practice throughout the book of Revelation. And you have several of those passages there in the notes. I'm just going to reference one um, from Revelation chapter 5 and verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and in all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Whatever it is, whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is blessed, let it all be attached to the Lord God of Israel, says Zechariah. And throughout the New Testament, this word, blessed, excuse me, is attached to God whenever reference is made to him as the father of the son. You look at it, he's always called the blessed God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle says, at this period of the world, we can hardly understand the depth of this good man's feelings. We must imagine ourselves in his position. We must fancy ourselves seeing the fulfillment of the oldest promise in the Old Testament, the promise of a Savior, and beholding the accomplishment of this promise brought near to our own door. He promised that he had come to visit and redeem his people. The word translated visit here is used to, to speak of a visit which includes inspection and examination. Now, hearing it, you might think of those Old Testament passages where it talks about God visiting his people for judgment. And there is that use, <coughs> excuse me, the idea of, of visiting. But it's a little bit different here. This sort of visit is of a different kind. This refers to the coming of the Son into the world and to walk among us, witnessing in the person of the Son 
the sorrows, the misery, the heartbreak of sin, the weakness of men and women, and in mercy offering himself a ransom. It's not that God didn't know all of those things. He knows all things. But he sent his son for us so that we could know that when we appeal to him in our sickness, he has been here in the person of his son and and stood in the presence of those who were terminally ill. Those who were sick, those who were suffering, those who were in the bondage of sin. He was here and he saw it in that sense. And if you look at the life of Christ in that light, it soon becomes obvious that this is what he's on. He's on an inspection tour. And after that, he offers himself as a ransom for men. Just think of himself as he walked among men and women as an observer, making comment on what he sees and what he hears. <coughs> From the very start of his public ministry to the end, it can be viewed that way. I wish I had time this morning to just sort of go through this, but we don't have time, but you can do it. Here's a few quick examples. The woman at the well. He observes her life and comments on it all. Doesn't he? He tells her that he knows that she's had many husbands. And then tells her she and the Samaritans don't know what they're worshiping. So she observes, he observes her situation and then he comments on it with the truth. He observes his disciples trying to keep the little children from bothering him. Remember, they don't want those little children bothering him. And what does he do? He rebukes them for it and says, allow the little children to come to me. He sees them doing this and, no, no, that's not what you do. You let the children come to me. He watches a widow drop her mite, her precious mite, into the treasury. And he comments on his generous character. And just one more. He's carrying his cross. And the weight of it has drained all the strength from his battered and abused body. And the guards who are taking him to the cross compel a man named Simon to take it on. And then Luke tells us this in Luke 23, beginning of verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So here he is under the burden of this cross. He hears this weeping and lamenting. And you don't see him going, oh, isn't it nice they're feeling sorry for me? Because I feel so sorry. No, he's there as an observer. He's visiting in that sense. He turns and says, no, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And as a result of all this observation, 
of all the things he already knew, he concludes, as the prophet, prophet says, that truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So he observed all the suffering, all the sorrow, all this pain in the world. And he put on the helmet of salvation and went to the cross to redeem, to ransom, to save those who were lost in sin and sorrow. He came to redeem his people. In this case, it refers to every sense. He came to redeem you so that you being delivered from the hand of your enemy might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all your days. The visit was to redeem God's people, not from temporal, but from spiritual bondage, from the bondage of sin and Satan, said Foot. Zechariah uses the language of prophets, referring to the matter of visiting and redeeming things. And you may view Zechariah's faith as quaint and rudimentary, but the truth is that with much less light, he had much more faith than many people. He believes God's word with a free and open heart here. And he's sure that all he has promised he will fulfill. He says he has raised up a horn for us. And all we want to say about that is that God took all those promises and all that was necessary to fulfill those promises and he, he brought it to the point of Christ coming into this world to die for you. And on that point, by the power and force of all that came behind it, he defeated all your enemies and mine and redeemed us, saved us, brought us life, brought us peace. And you remember, that's what they were praying for. When they were all lying on their faces in the temple, when Zechariah was going in with the incense, they were praying, Oh, Jehovah, bless us with peace. And the peace you know this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ, those of you who are his, it's an answer to that prayer. And it reflects back on the moment when these things took place. And they're a wonder. If you don't have that faith this morning, all of this is set before you as evidence. And the call of the gospel is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for these events as they unfolded on that day when Zechariah first walked into the temple, was chosen for this duty, saw Gabriel, heard the message you had for him, was put to silence, and then waited until that day when all that you had promised was fulfilled. 
And then you not only opened his mouth, but you filled him with the blessing of your Holy Spirit and the word poured out to the glory and honor of your name. And Father, we would stand with Zechariah this morning and say, Lord, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. Father, we thank you for that grace, for that love that has brought this message to us. And we pray if there's anyone here who's without that hope, that they will see now that peace in this world is to be found in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. But when it is found in him, everything, everything is provided. Because having given us your son so freely, surely you will freely give us all things. May we rejoice in that together today. And Lord, may your blessing be upon us throughout this season as we think of the wonders of the incarnation. For we ask it all in that precious name, that name which is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.